Uh, so it's Jeremiah 31, verse 23 to 37. Starting with verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and in all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this, I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of the people and of the animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and to tear down and to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Thanks, Chanel. Um, The psychologists and psychiatrists tell us that you need hope to live. You need food, yes, you need air, but you need hope. Um, There was a newly minted teacher who got a job uh, at the children's hospital. And apparently, children's hospital kids still need lessons and schooling. On her first day uh, in the job, she was sent to the cancer ward to a boy there Um, who had recently been diagnosed with serious cancer. She went in and said, hi, introduced herself, said, we're going to do maths today. And the boy just sort of rolled over and ignored her. She was a bit awkward, what do I do? But she's been paid to teach, so she did a maths lesson with this boy who just turned the other way and gave her nothing. The next day she came back to the ward and the nurses said, what did you do yesterday? She thought she must have been in trouble, so she started to apologise. You know, I'm you, I'm not quite sure what to do. They said, no, no, he's a different boy today. And they discovered that, well, when they asked him, what he said was, you don't teach maths to a boy who's going to die. Suddenly he had hope. Before that, he didn't have hope. Hope makes a difference. You know it with study, don't you? Have you ever been at that point where you think, I just can't pass? It's too late, there's no hope, and you just stop working, don't you? But if you're like me, there's always hope, up to the last minute, cram, yes, I can get there. And so you keep working. 
Question I've got for you, though, is which do you think is worse, false hope or no hope? Just talk to the person next to you. Which do you think is worse, false hope or no hope? <laughs> but who said false hope? A few? Who said no hope? A few yeah, could be either, couldn't it? Yeah, I think if you'd asked Jeremiah, the prophet that we're looking at this semester, he probably would have said false hope is worse. He spent most of his life tearing down all the false hopes that Judah clung to in their dark times. Last week we saw him engaging with these other prophets who claimed to, to offer hope. Soon, less than two years, they'll all come back from, from exile. Jeremiah says, no, that's false hope. It's not going to happen, not in our lifetime. Jeremiah had been sent to uproot and destroy, to overthrow. And in doing so, Jeremiah had overthrown, torn down false hopes. It's been a relentless de- uh, demolition job. Why? I, I think two reasons that, that were given in the book. One is false hope will devastate you when they fail to materialise. Secondly, false hope prevents you looking for and grabbing onto true hope, better hope. So where are we in Jeremiah? Judah's final days leading up to the Babylonian conquest and exile. And in these chapters, chapters 30 to 34, we're sort of looking at today or bits of it. We're right near the end of that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have already put Jerusalem under pressure They've already exacted a toll. Uh, They've put a puppet government in. And Jeremiah is speaking into that situation. And part of it is actually right at the end. There's a siege around Jerusalem. It's about to come under the destruction of Babylon. That's when he's speaking. Where does it fit in the book? Well, we've finished, by the time we get to chapter 24, the demolition job. The word of God dismantling all those false hopes that, is, that Judah has in the temple, in the covenant, in their election, in the king and in their false prophets. And now the tone changes. Now, having demolished all of those things, Jeremiah brings a word of hope, a word from God, a word of true hope. And if you've been with us for the last nine weeks or so, that's a bit of a relief, isn't it? <laughs> It's been pretty relentless. Bang, bang, smash, destruct. Finally, at last, God speaks a word of real hope. And the catchphrase is, the days are coming. Chapter 30, verses 2 and 3, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. The days are coming, not tomorrow, not next year, but they're coming, 70 years When I'll bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land. That's refreshing, isn't it? Something good, good news, good hope. The land I gave their ancestors to possess. And he says these words of hope are to be written in a book because the people who will hear them, who will experience the fulfilment of this hope, aren't aren't alive at the moment. They're yet to be born. And so inscripturate it, write it in a book, protected and handed on to those who will need to hear it in the future. And it's a word about planting and building. 
So chapter 31, the passage that Chanel read to us, the days are coming. There's that refrain, declares the Lord, when I'll plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and animals. Just as I watched over to uproot and tear down, that was the initial message, first 29 chapters, to overthrow and destroy, bring disaster. So I'll watch over my word now to build and to plant. They're the opposites, aren't they? To destroy and demolish, to desolate. Um, That's what his word was. Now it's to build and to plant. To build them as a nation and as individuals. Instead of being a, 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 a ruin, they'd now be strong and substantial. Instead of being a desert, they'd now be flourishing and stable. And God says, I'm watching. It's God's way of saying, I will make sure this will, ha- this will happen. I guarantee it by my own word. I swear by myself. It's so certain, in fact, that in chapter 32, Jeremiah is told to buy a field in Anathoth. Anathoth is the town he came, comes from. And he's told by God that when uh, one of his relatives come and says, I'm trying to flog this field because it's useless now. The Babylonians have taken over that area. It's under occupation. The the field is no use to me. I don't think I'll ever uh, be able to use it again. Will you buy it, Jeremiah? God says to Jeremiah, yeah, buy it. Buy that field because there is a future. Down the track, when you bring the title deeds out, they might be completely useless now, but one day... They'll be worth it. The field will be yours. It'll be productive. He's to put his money where his mouth is in an act of faith. Now, if you followed what God has been saying to Judah so far, you might be disappointed in God's promise to bring them back. Because the problem with Judah is not that they're in exile. It's their sin that has led them to exile. And has it been just a one-off slip-up? No, this is what Israel's been like right from the beginning, if you know any of the story of Israel. God does this incredible thing in, in rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. And he takes them across the Red Sea and drowns the whole Egyptian army and they're free and they're, they're God's people. And what do they do? What's the first thing they do? They complain about lack of water. God takes them to Mount Sinai. He speaks to them. He gives them his law. They sign in to be his people. They they sign up to the covenant that God gives them through Moses. And the, the, the first law in that covenant is, you shall have no other gods but me. You're not to make any images of God. And what do Israel do? They make a golden calf and bow down and worship it. Right from the beginning, Israel has been stubborn and rebellious. Despite all that God has done for them, they just keep stuffing it up again and again and again. We've seen it in the book of Jeremiah. Josiah, a good king, finally comes. He discovers the book of the law hidden in the temple somewhere under the rubble. He gets it out. He brushes it off and he starts to read it. And they realise they haven't been following God's ways. And he calls for a massive national repentance. Let's put all this right. And it sort of looks like it's, it's right, but it goes wrong so, so quickly. That's what Israel has been like. That's what Judah has been like from its beginning, persistently, deliberately. And so if God just says, well, now I'll bring you back from exile and plant you back in the land, what's going to happen? Well, they haven't changed, have they? A leopard can't change its spots. They'll just do it again, won't they? That is no hope, really. That's just microwaving an old dish that made you sick the first time. 
If you read the Old Testament from one end to the other, it's a fairly depressing read, isn't it? Because the people of Israel, the people privileged by God in every way imaginable, just keep stuffing it up again and again and again. And I often read it and I think, man, that's just what we're like, isn't it? That's what we as humans are like. I'm no worse or better than them. If, if I had all those privileges, I'd probably do the same thing. What hope is there for humanity? If all God, God does is reheat the old thing again, what hope is there in that? What we discover in Jeremiah 31 is that God's hope is better than that. What he promises Israel is not just a return of the old Israel back to their land to stuff it up again, but a whole new covenant. Something new at the heart, something different at its core. And so come with me to the the reading that was read, Jeremiah 31, especially verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. What is this new covenant? Well, he tells us what's wrong with the old covenant in verse 32. I'll make a new covenant because it's not going to be like the old one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, the one he made with them through Moses at Mount Sinai. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. See, what was wrong with the old covenant? Did God sort of get it wrong? Did he design it badly? Did he need to come and edit it and fix it up a little bit? Did God break his side of the agreement? No, Israel broke it again and again and again. They're incapable of keeping their side and they proved it century after century after century. They're incapable of staying loyal. So what's the solution? What could give them real hope? Only fixing the people. That's the only thing that can bring real hope. And so in these verses, in verses 31 to 34, we see three interlocking features of this new covenant that God gives. God promises. The first one is transformed hearts. You see it in verse 33. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Where was the old covenant written? It was written, chiselled into stone. That's pretty, well, it's clear, it's indelible, that sort of lasts a long time. But there's a problem with it. It has no power to help you to obey it. It's like a sign I used to have on my desk when I was a university student, which said, study harder. Make any difference? No. (laughs) Told me what to do, but it didn't give me the motivation to study. It just sat there, read and ignored. God says, this time, I'm going to chisel my law into your hearts. They're going to be internal to you, not external, not on, on stone, but inside you to give you the motivation. So you want to do my work. Jeremiah has constantly diagnosed Israel's problem as a heart problem. Back in chapter 9, the Lord said, It's because you've forsaken my law which I set before them. They have not obeyed or followed me. Instead, they've followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They've followed the Baals. Uh, 
Or in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Israel's heart, the heart of humans, is hard as granite. It's unmovable as Uluru. It's shouting louder doesn't help. More clarity is useless. It's deceitful. It's incurable. In the Old Testament, if you like, God tries everything that might cure the heart of sinful humans to no avail. But God now says, I will cure the heart. I'll change people's hearts so they can do my will, so they want to do my way and live my way. God is saying he's going to do something that no one else can do. Reach inside a person like you and me and write on their hearts. Get us a pen out and chisel into our hearts his, his will so that we think differently, so we want differently, so our desires are reshaped to change us. And that's a game changer. So if that had happened to me with my study sign, I wouldn't need the sign anymore, would I? I'd just study. Well, this isn't about study. It's about pleasing our Lord and God. Uh, Secondly, he says that all will know him from the least to the greatest. Verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbour, say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They'll no no longer need Moses and the prophets because with Moses and the prophets, it feels like you're just getting text messages from God. But now every person will have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. We won't need to be urging each other then, hey, come on, listen to God, stick with God, because we'll have new hearts. That's stick with God. Thirdly, he says, I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It was the sin of Israel, their wickedness, that led to exile. The old covenant had provision for unintentional sin. There were sacrifices to make, but this persistent, stubborn wickedness, this whoring after other gods, There was no forgiveness under the old covenant. It ripped that covenant to shreds. But now God promises a a full forgiveness of all wickedness. God says, I'm determined not to remember their sins anymore. Now, that's much stronger than saying he'll forget our sins. Because when you forget something, what happens? It's unpredictable when you remember it, isn't it? But God says something much stronger. He says... I will not remember. I've decided to no longer take it into account. Even if it's there, even if I'm aware of it, I won't remember it. I'll put it aside. It's not part of the equation anymore. The effect of all those three things together is what he describes at the end of verse 33. I will be their God and they will be my people. If you know the Old Covenant, that's what it was meant to achieve. That was its goal all along. It was always God's goal, but the Old Covenant never achieved it. Now it will succeed. If God does these things, then all the flaws of the Old Covenant are remedied. It'll now work. And notice all these things that God says in these verses, God does. We don't do them. We're not called on to do anything. He changes our hearts. He remembers our sin no more. He makes himself our God and us, his people. This isn't a self-improvement course. 
It's God stepping in and doing something significant and different. Even when it happens, it'll be the biggest shake-up in God-human relationships since the fall. So the question is, did it happen? Well, about uh, 70 years after Jeremiah, God did gather a struggling group of Jews back from Babylon, took them into Palestine and Jerusalem, was sort of rebuilt over a period of 40, 50 years or so. But it was just some of Judah. It wasn't even Israel, the other half. And there was no heart change. But about 600 years after Jeremiah, Jesus gathered his close friends together for the Passover, his followers, for this meal that celebrated the Old Covenant. And this is what he said. After supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Boom. This is it, says Jesus. That new covenant that I promised way back then with Jeremiah, now it's coming into operation. And it comes into operation through my blood poured out for you. By the next morning, Jesus has been arrested, tried, condemned, crucified. By the next afternoon, he'd given his life as a sacrifice to seal this new covenant between God and humanity. This is what God had in mind. When he said, the days are coming when I make a new covenant with Israel and Judah. With Jesus, the old covenant has been superseded. The new covenant takes over. And as we read the New Testament, we find this language of new covenant coming up again and again and again. Let's explore some of those. One of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, talking about himself, says he's made us competent as ministers of new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Do you see that contrast? The old covenant was just letter. It was letters chiselled into stone and it just killed. But the new covenant, written by the spirit of God on human hearts, that brings life, not death and condemnation. In a sense, Paul is saying, I'm so glad I'm not like Jeremiah. Because I get to preach this new covenant Not the old covenant. The old covenant, I just preach law. I just tell people what God says they're supposed to do and say, will you do it? And the law, yes, it's good and wise, but they can't keep it. In the end, I'm just preaching condemnation to them. I can't do anything about it, like Jeremiah's message to Judah. But Paul says, I'm so glad I get to preach this new covenant. Not a a covenant of try harder, pull yourself up, come on, you can do it. But God gives you his own spirit who enables you to do what you can't do, who softens hearts and regenerates us so we're different people, enabling us to do what pleases God. Later in the chapter, he says, All we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Do you get a a feel for it? As we look at Jesus now, we see him in scriptures The Spirit is transforming us from the inside to be like Jesus. What we see as we contemplate the glory of Jesus, the wonder that God the Son humbled himself to death by crucifixion, who loved us with that sort of love. The Spirit moves us to follow the same path, to do that same sort of thing, to risk shame and 
and cross the pain line for the salvation of others, to love them like Christ has loved us. And one day, that transformation will be complete. We will be conformed to the likeness of Christ when we see him, when he returns. Hebrews chapters 8 to 10 also picks up this idea of uh, a new covenant. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer quotes that whole bit we, we read, verses 31 to 34, and then he expands on it particularly about the way in which uh, Jesus brings that forgiveness that that new covenant is promised uh, to include. He says the old covenant didn't really work. The law, the old covenant, is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities that didn't actually work. They're an annual reminder of sins because, in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're just a shadow of the new covenant. They're obsolete now. The new covenant has come. They didn't actually take away sin and cleanse consciences. Instead, in a sense, they did the opposite. They kept reminding us and God of our sin. Because every year we had to keep coming with more sacrifices. But what has Christ done? Well, the blood of Christ, who offered himself through the eternal spirit, unblemished to God, cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God. Israel couldn't, but those under the new covenant, we can because of Christ's once for all sacrifice for sin. Most of us are all too aware of our failings, aren't we? They sit on our consciences and every now and then something scratches and it rises to our surface, to the surface, especially... When we want to come to God and pray, we, we become aware of God's goodness and, and we're a bit afraid. But Christ has paid it in full. The reality for all who trust Jesus today is that they've signed on to the new covenant. The new covenant is in operation now. God remembers our sin no more. But if you took in Jeremiah 31, you might still have a question. A a, a sort of a loose dream, because one of the strong emphases in Jeremiah 31 is that in the new covenant, Israel and Judah will be gathered back to the land of Palestine. God will plant them in their ancient home in that land. In the time of Jesus, well, there were some there, but Jesus comes and inaugurates the new covenant. And within 40 years, they're scattered to the ends of the earth. What's happened to Israel, to Judah? How can Paul assert that the new covenant's in operation if it hasn't included the gathering of Israel together? Well, the answer the New Testament gives is that what God had in mind when he promised this thing, this hope that Judah and Israel would be regathered back to their land, was actually something much bigger than just regathering Israel. One passage that brings some of this out is Ephesians 2 that we looked at in the first semester. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that is outside these promises that Jeremiah made to Israel, this new hope, this new covenant. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, outside the covenant, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been included in this gathering of people. Later on, he talks about you're now fellow citizens with God's people. 
You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It's interesting that the word church that Jesus used and the New Testament uses for Christians gathering together picks that up. What does the word church mean? It just means gathering. Why did they use that word for what Christians do? Because that's what this is about. God is going to gather his people. That's the promise of the new covenant. He'll gather his people and plant them and build them. And now that the, the people of God is much broader than Israel, Jews. It includes Gentiles as well. 2 Corinthians 3 is written to Gentiles. They are in the new covenant. We are in the new covenant. Well, Jeremiah's message, he's demolished false hopes. He's cleared the ground for true hope, God-given hope, a future when God's covenant will work, when he will be our God and we will be his people permanently. So what does it look like to live in hope? I want to say two things. There's sort of two phases to it, the the now and and the then. What does now look like? If you're a Christian trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then you are a product of God's new covenant. God's law has been written on your hearts by God's spirit. And God remembers your sin no more. He remembers my sin no more. Our situation is not the same as Judah and Israel in the Old Testament that Jeremiah confronted. Stubborn, hard hearts that will never change. Let me ask you, how do you think about yourself? Do you think about yourself as a sinner or a saint? A sinner stubbornly ingrained with sin. That sin is inevitable. Whatever you might struggle with, you're going to fail. Sorry about that. In fact, you'll probably not even stay Christian. At some point, you'll turn away from Christ, just like Israel did. Is that how you think of yourself? Or or a saint? Yes, you do and will struggle with sin, but you know that God's spirit is within you. You expect progress. You're no longer captive to the power of sin and evil. The new covenant makes us saints, not sinners. God's spirit has written and is writing God's ways in your heart. You're not the same person anymore. There is real hope of making substantial progress. Or do you think of yourself as guilty or innocent? When you think, oh, I just want to ask God something, Uh, please God, give me, you stop yourself thinking, hold on, how have I behaved in the last day? What's my record been like? What's God going to bring out if I come and ask for something? I'm sure he'll bring that out and that out. And so you shrink back or are you assured? Yes, you know those things, but Christ died for them. God will not remember them when I come to him. Guilty or innocent? Now, I don't want to make you feel guilty about feeling guilty. That's not my purpose. I want you to know the joy of conscience cleansed by Christ's death, that you are part of God's new covenant. But what about the then? Because this new covenant will reach its culmination when Jesus returns, when that new heart planted in us will fill our lives and sin and all its effects will be eradicated forever. Is that your hope? Is is that your longing? Or have you replaced that longing with other small hopes, false hopes? Jeremiah's ministry 
involved clearing the ground, deconstructing all those small hopes, those false hopes of Judah, saying that they wouldn't, they're not going to happen, and even if they did, they couldn't deliver. He's trying to sort of release their grasp on these hopes that they've taken hold of, because unless he opens their hand out, they can't grasp what God truly has promised them. Are you still clinging to your small hopes, your false hopes? You know, that, that one day I might graduate and get that dream job. If only he or she liked me. If only I owned that, that car or that coat. How do you know? Remember what Jeremiah was instructed to do. Buy a field in the future Israel. Put your faith in the word of God, the sure hope that God gives, he promises. Invest in the world God has promised that doesn't yet exist and watch God bring it about. Now, the question I think for us is, what are we investing in? Treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? What field are you buying at the moment? Is it the one God has promised or one that is a false hope and will prove empty?